0: We started teaching kind of a new series last week, and we talked about overcoming your lived experience. That's kind of this new little catchy term. There's a whole lot of um, Orwellian doublespeak going on. You need to go read the novel 1984, George Orwell's 1950, something classic about the day we actually live in where words are being evolved and rapidly stolen and hijacked. And um, uh, we all have what is a so-called lived experience. One of the things we debunked about the whole modern secularist notion of lived experience is when you exalt it above biblical truth or responsibility, you can use your lived experience very quickly to fabricate and propagate your, quote, truth, my truth. We've all heard that secular humanist term, my truth. God doesn't care about your truth. Jesus Christ settled it once forever. He said, Father, thy word is truth. Everything else in our life is just a cheesy perspective. I have counseled now for many, many years and worked on marriages and troubleshot discipleship issues and leadership problems, and one thing is true. When there's tension, there's always three sides to every story, and only one of them is truth, and it isn't presented by anybody in the room. There's always person A side of the story, and their truth person B side of the story and their lived experience and then there's the God's honest truth somewhere in the middle that neither one of them can see the fullness of and I'm talking about two Holy Ghost Spiritful people that love each other so we totally reject the exaltation of lived experience because most of it when we talk about it and brag about it we're trying to use it as an excuse to not have to obey God and I curse that junk to hell so we don't care about your lived experience and that's good for you because we're never going to hold it against you but you don't get to use it against God. Now it does formulate us. It does build us. It does kind of produce who we are today. And maybe if you would do a little bit more investigation on your lived experience, it would help explain why you're such the mess that you are and maybe why you have some of the strengths you do. So it's not all lived experience is bad. I don't want us to get into that ditch either. But we've got to be able to be honest and judge our past according to the Bible, reject that which is uh, wicked and keep that which is good. Even in our parents, none of us were raised perfectly. Some of us had wonderful families. Some of us, uh, if you only knew the upbringing of some of these folks that you're sitting around, you'd be shocked and you'd never complain about your mom and dad ever again. Even the weirdest foster parent put something good in us, even if it was just a cup of soup. (laughs) You know, and then you can only improve from there. And so we don't exalt our lived experience. I don't have a problem with you looking at it going... Wrong, 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 wrong. Need to repent of all that and find discipleship to get that out of me. Good, 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 good. That put a strength in me. That put a courage in me. But we never, ever have biblical permission to exalt lived experience over the calling of God. We're living in a very psychological age, a postmodern, postbiblical, deconstructionist, my truth, blah, 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 I'm going to hell story and we have to be careful that we don't let this wash over us. Romans tells us, let God be true and every man a liar, that you mightest overcome when you are judged and get to victory when God scrutinizes your life. So here, here's what that sounds like, to quote Pastor John Osteen. Shut up and plead guilty. That's what that means. Just shut up and plead guilty. So last week we looked at Peter, and he had a lived experience being a Jew being a poor Jew, a kind of a country boy, a fisherman type. His, his accent belied him. They could tell where he was from by his accent. And he was rough and tough. We know he had a big mouth on him. And, and he was the one that went to hacking people to death or trying to in prayer meeting. I mean, you got issues when you're praying in the Lord with the Lord and next thing you know, you got a sword swinging it. And the, even the weirder thing is the Lord told him to bring that sword. Think about that. The Lord said, we're gonna go pray, we need swords. And Peter says, I've got two. I'm like, where did those come from all of a sudden? <laughs> He's like, I just had just the two. And the Lord says, that'll do. And they go to the prayer meeting. I mean, who needs two swords for a prayer meeting? And then Peter's the one that starts swinging them and cuts off uh, the ear of the servant. Uh, And so the Lord has to work a miracle there. And oh, Peter. So he had some serious issues. And uh, we saw last week where it was affecting his ability to obey God and the call of God. And God winked at it. The Lord Jesus knew it was an issue when he was in the earth. He knew it was an issue at the day of Pentecost. He knew it was an issue 10 years later when Cornelius called for him. And it's still an issue four or five years later when Paul has to rebuke him as recorded in Galatians chapter two. So we saw how that lived experience was a bias and a prejudice. And oh, by the way, every one of us has a prejudice in us. Some prejudice is good. You prejudge things based on past experience. And, but it's, when it's an unjust or an unbiblical prejudice, that's bad. So you had a bad experience with a fellow human being sometime. Not every human being is like that, so don't be prejudging things in that situation. But you know, if you've ever driven on an icy road and you slipped and fell off, you're going to prejudge snow next time and maybe slow down. So that's a good prejudice. It really irks me that I have to take time to redeem simple English words. Like the fact right now, like if you don't agree with me, you just call me a racist. I'm just like, come on, you idiots. And then you're going to complain that you paid 80 grand for that education and want me to pay it off for you. Yeah. Acts chapter, excuse me, Exodus 2. Tonight, I want to talk about Moses and his lived experience. Because hopefully by the end of this series, and I don't know how long we're going to go for with it, we're going to see that you don't get to use your lived experience for anything but a foundation to burn to the ground and rebuild upon. That's all your lived experience is good for. And I'm sorry to to, uh, demolish what you think is awesome and to strip from you whatever excuse. And uh, I don't know, pass go card you have, you know, one of those trump cards, get out of responsibility cards. Because our generation has been taught how to be victims. Not my generation, the younger generation. Right now, it's so cool to be a victim. And it's kind of almost like a peeing contest. Who can be the biggest victim? And when you exalt victimhood in our nation, everybody wants to be a victim. So we're just making up sufferings now. And that's how weird, insecure people get attention on social media. And they have a hashtag for their kind of suffering. And I'm sorry, if you live in this nation, you live at the top 2% of all mankind ever. And I don't feel sorry for you none and neither does Jesus Christ, so get over yourself. Quit worshiping at the altar of you because that's idolatry, and it will send you to hell. We are blessed, so shut your mouth. Amen. And we don't get into social justice because social justice is based on the whims of carnal society. So right now, when I say social justice, what that means is gay rights, women's rights. Okay, what rights do women have that they don't we have PhDs. We have we have a female vice president. We have female senators, female Supreme Court. I mean, what? Where's the glass ceiling? I don't. I don't. So social justice is abortion rights. Social justice is transgender rights. Social justice is climate crisis, climate change, global warming. Save the planet. Save the seals. Save the walrus. Save the forest. It's always changing. They're running out of words. Huh. So I, I don't know. what's, what's your justice? It's your truth is what it is. So I curse that to hell, too, because it's not biblical. We want biblical justice because it's based on the standard of God's word that never changes. Because the next order of social justice will be for pedophiles. Because, you know, that's a sexual orientation now, too. And they can't control their child attraction. No, but a shotgun can. Amen. Amen. And I think that's why society and Yahoo News and Instagram and Facebook is treading lightly. How do we go? This? So I just want you to know, when you claim you're a social justice warrior, I think you're pro-pedophile. I think you're pro-transgender. That's my opinion of you. You're going to say you're a social justice warrior so you support homosexuals and abortion. Because that's social justice. It's the justice that's important to society. And if you hadn't noticed, our society is corrupt and it's going to hell. So that's why we don't care about your lived experience. Because if you exalt that, you'll never have any hope in Christ to be delivered from your lived experience. All right. So Moses, because I don't want to go all this anti-woke stuff. I beat that dog. It's too easy to beat. It's a little chihuahua that just yelps and wets itself when you look at it too hard. (laughs) Yo quiero go wee-wee. Exodus chapter 2. So let's talk about Moses. We're all familiar with Moses, but let's look at it from a different angle tonight. Verse 5, Exodus 2, 5. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. That is the ark that baby Moses was in. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept, and she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. She could tell. This is not an Egyptian. This is a Hebrew baby because they look different. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, that is Miriam, "Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee?" And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "Go." And the maid went and called the child's mother. So now we know Moses' mother gets to breastfeed her own baby in the in that in her own house and get paid to do it. Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, "Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee wages." <laughs> What's it? Well, I guess that's welfare when you get paid to raise your own kid. That's messed up. That is really messed up. But hey, it works here. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew. And we don't know how old it is, maybe four, five, six years old before it begins to go now into the Pharaoh's palace. But Moses, is a, he's weaned. That's typically three, four, five years old, especially in the developing nations even to this day. And she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, which is actually Egyptian. Uh, and, she, and she said, because I drew him out of the water. Uh, Mo is the word for river, and then Usius is to be drawn out. So Moses is a, an Egyptian name. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he espied an Egyptian, smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And we'll stop there. So we jump quickly from the birth of Moses and the edict to uh, murder all babies born among the Hebrews because the Hebrew population is swelling, and it's scaring the Egyptians because they're prospering. And we know that he gets adopted into the household of Pharaoh's daughter. And now we jump ahead approximately 35 years. The book of Acts, which we'll look at shortly, tells us that when Moses is 40, it enters into his heart, this calling to deliver his people. And that's when he goes out, sees this happenstance, <clears throat> assumes that the Hebrews will understand what he's called to do and join in, and he just kills an Egyptian. And we know that messes everything up. So let me give you some backstory. The Bible really skips over a lot Of those years, it really just jumps over. So what I'm going to give you is both from Josephus of on the Antiquity of the Jews. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian, first century A.D., and then his writings are based on some Greek historians. And then I'm going to also quote from some ancient Egyptian history, I don't know fourth or fifth century B.C. that tells the same story but with different names because of their language. I want to fill in some of the gaps. We're going to hold it loosely because it's not scripture; it's history. But we know history decays a little bit and there's always some liberties taken. If you ever had a chance to see Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, it's about a four hour movie. I would recommend all of you do it because it is one of the greatest movies ever made. The first two hours is the story of Moses in Egypt before he flees. It's two two Blu-rays. That's how big of a movie it is. And we got to the, we watched it a year or two ago. I bought it. I had never seen the whole thing. The kids fell in love with it. But I thought, wow, the DVD's about over and we haven't even gotten to Midian yet. Yeah, that Ten Commandments part is going to go fast. Oh, no. No, 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 no. The second DVD gets in there, it's another two hours. But the first two hours is a lot of them pulling from the history of Josephus and some other mid, uh, Midrash and Talmudic writings to fill in the gaps to kind of understand. We want to hold it loosely, but it's pretty much agreed upon in history that these are facts. So it's important. We'll also see how that plays out in the rest of the story. And remember, our bigger theme here is God doesn't care about your lived experience. He's going to deconstruct you, and I hate that word because it's a postmodernist, post-humanist term. He's going to break you down and make you better. Let's use the six million dollar man. We have the technology in Christ. We will make you better. <laughs> of course, with the Biden inflation, it's a six trillion dollar man, and all we do is give you a knee replacement we got out of Yugoslavia, <laughs> and that's if it can get through the ports in California. Help these progressives, man. They can't run anything but a country into the ground. All right. So Josephus said this Moses' uh, Egyptian mother's name was Thermathus. That's here, Egyptian. You don't have to write that down. It's just fun to read. He was the seventh from Abraham. Moses, meaning drawn out of the river. Much of Egyptian culture and religion was deeply connected to the Nile, as we understand. And consequently, that's why the first plague that Moses wrought destroyed the river Nile, turned it all to blood. A lot of their religion came out of it. They had gods that were part of the river. Uh, the, the, they were always trying to worship uh, the gods of the river. It flooded every year. They needed it to flood to bring silt into their fields and irrigate it. Uh, so it's interesting. The first thing God attacks is their whole course of life. Philo, who was a first century Jewish philosopher, he wrote that Moses was educated in all of the sciences of the Chaldeans and the Assyrians, and uh, Acts confirms that he was trained up in all the knowledge and wisdom of Egypt. Moses was adored by his adoptive mother, according to Josephus, but he was feared by Pharaoh and Pharaoh's priests. And this is interesting. This is what Josephus records. Again, he's first century, which is still a thousand years past Moses' day, uh, or technically 1,400 years. He said, Josephus records that when the child was brought into the palace, the, the priests and the soothsayers, if you will, the magicians, they prophesied and said, this child is the downfall of Egypt. And he said, and you must kill this child because he will give hope to the Hebrews and he will strip the Egyptians of our power. That was prophesied over the child by the Egyptian magicians and soothsayers. And so the question is asked, well, how did did they know that? All those folks were tapping into the spirit realm, like Balaam in Numbers. Balaam's a soothsayer. He can prophesy by demons. He's going to go prophesy by demons for Balak to curse the Hebrews. But he gets up on those mountains and Jehovah God shows up. And he says, hi, God. And he knows them. He just doesn't serve them. The spirit realm is very busy. these guys were always bumping into stuff. So these Egyptian priests and uh, um, uh, magicians apparently knew by the Spirit of God, this is a deliverer and he's going to destroy us. So I think it's interesting, according to Josephus, not the Bible, but Josephus on the antiquity of the Jews, that the, the Egyptian magicians and the Egyptian soothsayers prophesied, this child will destroy us. This child will bring courage and hope to the Hebrews and hopelessness and destruction to us. And they told Pharaoh, kill him now. And Pharaoh, according to Josephus, was a little reluctant because his daughter's in, totally in love with this baby. And so he just kind of winks at it. But Josephus also goes on to say that as the boy grows, that he was very handsome. He was very tall and he was smart beyond his age. And it began to make everybody in the court nervous, the royal court. That also feeds into what uh, Stephen talked about him in Acts chapter 7, that he was learning all the knowledge and all the wisdom of Egypt. Uh, Josephus tells us that he just was a very quick study. Um, they sought to kill him because of their own prophecies. He was used to lead a war against the Ethiopians. So about the time, he's a young man, 25 or 30, and his, uh, his stature and his fame is very strong in Egypt. There's no real heir apparent, according to Josephus, as I recall reading. Uh, uh, the, the Pharaoh doesn't have a son, so it's going to fall to Moses. They're nervous because he has favor. He's good looking. He's smart. He's got natural leadership on him. And they, they're being attacked on their, western, excuse me, their eastern border by the Ethiopians. It was a great empire at the time. And they were burning cities that had even taken over and were living in the city of Memphis. That's not our Memphis. If you didn't know, our Memphis is named after the Egyptian Memphis. And uh, so what they say is, hey, let him lead the army and uh, he can put down the Ethiopians and hopefully they'll kill them for us. And so he was all excited to go do it. There's a fun story where they had to pass through a certain valley that was known for its snakes and the Ethiopians kind of used it as a defense mechanism. And the the thought was, if we pass through there, we'll lose a lot of troops because of these venomous snakes that just dwelt there. And uh, Moses had the idea to have all of his soldiers weave baskets and catch ibis birds because ibis birds attack snakes. And they march to this valley and they basically just have snake deterrence. And they march and he annihilates the Ethiopians makes a pact. The Ethiopian's king, his daughter, falls in love with Moses, and Moses ends up marrying her. That's recorded history. Some believe that's the Cushite the the Hebrews later had an issue with, Cushite being Ethiopia. Uh, So whether he got back with her after he married and divorced Zipporah, we don't know. Uh, But we know that Miriam's slander later was because he married a Cushite, a Cushite being a very dark woman Ethiopians being a different color than the Hebrews anyway history records that he married the Ethiopians, the Jews and the Midrash and the rabbis debate whether he ever consummated the marriage or not but he defeats the Ethiopians, marries the, the Ethiopian princess and this is when he comes back um, there's a, a, a Egyptian historian his name is Man, uh, uh, Manatheo he writes it's pretty funny to read his his, uh, his writings from Two 3,000 years ago, he said, under Pharaoh Timaeus, he says, I know not why, but God became averse to us Egyptians. And that's when God begins moving against the Egyptians. But to read this pagans, he said, during his reign, God turned against us and we don't know why. And he goes on to talk about the people that the Egyptians called the Hiskos. The Hiskos is a compound word in the ancient Egyptian, which means the enslaved shepherds. And it was because of these enslaved shepherds our life was made miserable. Pretty cool to read that in a secular historian from 25, 2,600 years ago. The hiscos, the captive shepherds. So that kind of brings us up to speed. So we see that at, yet he's 40 years old and it enters into his heart now to go visit his brother. And let's, jump to, let's jump to Acts chapter 7. We'll to lay a foundation, and then we're going to talk about deconstructing our lived experience. I would say for most of us, until we're discipled, we're going to always use our past as an excuse to stay wretched. Stay the same. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Yep, and he's telling you to get over it. He's a comforter, but he comforts you so you can fulfill your call. Do you not believe he's a deliverer? Do you not believe he's a helper? Do you not believe he's an anointer? Do you not believe he's a king? Do you not believe he has a calling for you? So get over yourself. Get over your past. Don't mean to put you down, but uh, you've cried enough, haven't you? You've wept enough, haven't you? Why do you let the past win? Like I've taught you for years, I heard it from a psychologist. You Got to give up all hope for a better past. Because you're never going to have a better past. But you can have a better future in Christ if you'll pursue it. Acts chapter 7, verse 21. And when Moses was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. This is Stephen, the first martyr, running through the history of the Jews to preach to the Pharisees. It's like he takes a running start through the history of the Jews and ends up into Christ, and they kill him for it. <laughs> but he shows them, I know our doctrine because I'm a Jew. And this is where Christ was every step of the way. And that's who we just killed. And it's him. It's our Messiah. And they took up stones and killed him. But he's teaching stuff that the Exodus doesn't because he has other information that we don't. But it becomes doctrine for us. Verse 23, excuse me, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Mighty in words and in deeds. Mighty in speech. He did not have a speech impediment. That's a horrible doctrine for why he said, Lord, I'm of a stammering lip, stuttering tongue. I heard that growing up. See, Moses had a speech impediment. No, he didn't. He was raised to be Pharaoh. He was trained up in all the knowledge and learning of Egypt. The king's kid doesn't need a speech pathologist. He's not stuttering. And we'll explain what he meant in a moment. And he was mighty in deeds. He was a general. He led military victories against the Ethiopians. He was no slouch. Verse 23, and when he was full 40 years old, the New Old Testament doesn't tell us that. When he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed, and he smote the Egyptians, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. So, apparently, at about 40 years old, he begins to recognize he has this calling on his life. Now, this is interesting, because I'm sure if he's four or five years old, when he comes into the house of Pharaoh, he recognizes he's a Hebrew. His mother probably prayed with him and taught him stuff. But he's raised in full-fledged uh, Egyptian court. He's raised to be the next Pharaoh. He's raised uh, in this mighty capacity and all their training and tutelage and capacity for war. Um, it's even a speculation that I don't disagree with that he was also raised in their witchcraft because all the knowledge and wisdom of the Egyptians would include all their idols, their polytheism, their witchcraft. This is also why I believe the first couple miracles he does, Pharaoh gets angry at because the magicians do the same miracles. And it would be like the magician saying, we taught you that. What else can you do? And there reaches a point where the plagues and the miracles keep going and the magicians say, all right, we can't do this. So that would explain why their hearts were hardened when they throw a stick down and it becomes a snake and the magicians throw their sticks down and it becomes a snake and Moses' the snake keeps up their snakes and they turn the river to blood. Well, we do the same thing. Toads, we do the same thing. So it would be like, yeah, he, he knew everything. But now all of a sudden at 40, he tweaks and he realizes I'm meant to be more than this i meant to be more than Egyptian. I'm meant to be more than a prince. I'm meant to be more than a pharaoh. God has called me to defend my people. I'm sure he knew he was a Hebrew. I'm sure everybody could recognize he was a Hebrew. But something changed and he no longer wants to be counted among his people. He wants to be counted among God's people. And that's something we need to all get a hold of because no matter where we come from, We want to identify with the people where we come from, and that's not always right. Sometimes the worst thing you could do is to identify with the people you come from. They don't want you to escape, though, because if you escape, you'll show them how bad they are. So you obey God and say, Mama, I love you, but I got to serve God. Amen. Amen. All right. So let me see where my notes are at here. He was an Egyptian for 40 years. That meant he was an Egyptian in culture. He was an Egyptian in life perspective. He was an Egyptian in education, in language. An Egyptian in military training, architectural training. An Egyptian in political training. An Egyptian in caste training, upper class, lower caste. An Egyptian in mindset. The Hebrews were his brethren but they were also a totally different group of people. Uh, You have to know that just because you're raised, you have a certain DNA, doesn't mean you have the same culture. Certainly, if we've learned nothing by the world getting smaller, just because you have the same skin color doesn't mean you have anything in common. I have nothing in common with my Scottish heritage. Nothing. Except the last name. I got so much other mutt in me they call it 23 and me because you got 23 other genes in you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. We're of one race, and that would be the human race. Just because you got the same skin color doesn't mean you got anything else in common. So quit worshiping your skin color. Worship your Savior. Amen. Amen. <laughs> just because he's a Hebrew doesn't mean he has anything in common with him. And just because he's are recognizing a calling doesn't mean he's prepared. Amen. Amen. Uh, we got to make sure that just because we recognize a calling doesn't mean God means for us to start it tomorrow. There may be a massive bridge to cross to get there. The Hebrews were his brethren, but they were also a different culture, a lower class, they were slaves. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 because there's three main areas we're going to pull from here. Hebrews chapter 11. We're just building a foundation helping you get into the mindset of Moses. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, 40 years old. Now, just stop for a second. How American are you when you've been in America for 40 years? I mean, you are red, white, and blue. How, how African are you if you've been in Africa for 40 years? How European, how French are you if you've lived the first 40 years of your life in France? You are French through and through. And yet, this is when he realizes everything I've been taught is wrong. Yet there's a calling. And what people do is they make the mistake of saying, well, I recognize the calling. I must be ready. But you've been one way for 40 years And God winked at it and allowed it to be there, and there'll be some strengths to come of it. But what we're about to see, and we know where the story's going, things have to be completely stripped out of Moses, and new things have to be put into Moses. He doesn't get to use his past experience or his lived experience as an excuse to stay the same. He has to submit to the reprogramming, the discipleship, the reflavoring of God if he's going to finish his race. Amen. If you know the story, he doesn't finish his race. He's a military general. And in the very end of his life, he loses his cool. He strikes the rock a second time. And he wasn't fully fixed. And it cost him the promise of setting his feet in the promised land for himself. Now, the Bible does tell us the Lord took him in the spirit and showed him all the way from Dan down to Beersheba. He saw the promised land in the spirit as a reward, but he never got to enter in. Because he never was fully purged. I mean, how heartbreaking to make it that far. And yet many will do it. He's not not in hell. But he didn't finish his race. He did awesome. And the whole of the New Testament says Moses and the prophets. That's how awesome he was. Moses and the prophets. All the other prophets equal Moses. And what they have to say about the Lord. But he didn't finish it because he wasn't fully fixed. He still had some of this anger in him, this rage in him that he snapped. The psalmist said they provoked his attitude to rage. It says, verse 24, he came a few years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This wasn't being unthankful. This is recognizing if I'm going to go with God, I'm going to have to divorce some things. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So serving God is a choice. And you do it by faith. You choose to leave Ur of the Chaldees. You choose to leave the past behind. You choose to leave offense and pain and shame and poor upbringing and cultural pride behind that you might obtain Christ. Not all culture is bad, but if it's sinful, call it sinful. Every culture's got wickedness in it. Every culture's got messed up stuff in it. And every culture has wonderful things in it. We don't defend our culture. We defend Jesus Christ. And He'll let you keep some of your culture, but He's not going to let you keep all of it because not all culture is good. Amen. <laughs> By faith, He aligned Himself with God's people over His cultural familiarity. By faith, he forsook Egypt, all he had ever known. This is where you forget your lived experience. By faith, there are times, and I just have to let the Holy Spirit custom tailor this statement to you. There are times where you just have to leave stuff behind and never go back to it. Now, If your upbringing's in the house of God and it's in Pentecost or good Southern Baptist or good hardcore Methodist, there's not a lot to leave behind necessarily. But not all of us were born in the house of God. Not all of us were raised in the house of God. Some of us were raised total pagans. Some of us were raised in cults. I mean, we have two folks in this church that were raised in cults. Like, real cults. Not, I don't like your church, it's a cult cult. (laughs) Some of us were raised in foster care by weird people and There's stuff we need to leave behind. And some of us, you know, mom and dad did their best, but there's some weird stuff we need to leave behind still. We're all leaving something behind. We put off the old, we put on the new. But it takes faith to leave all that you know that you might obtain Christ. Even Paul struggled with it. He had to leave all that pharisaical stuff behind that he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. His desire to answer the call thrust him into a new season of upheaval and what I'll call flavor change. This is what we saw with Peter. The more Peter said, Lord, I will even die for you. Peter said, Lord, I'll go with you to the ends of the earth. The closer, I I see it this way, the closer Peter pressed into the Lord Jesus, the more stuff had to come off of him. And the more you and I claim, Lord, I want you, Lord, I need you, Lord, I I want to do anything. The more we press into him, it's like walking closer and closer to a fire. Stuff's going to start catching. It's going to start burning off of you and it will not be pleasant. It will not give you burns, but it will not be pleasant. And this is the test because not every Christian will do it. They will back off and find a nice, comfortable, lukewarm walk with Christ. And they will stay the same. You will get as close as you're comfortable being in pain. And you'll always recognize it because you won't change anymore. You will have come this far and no further. But with Peter, we saw the more he pressed in, the more God was dealing with wickedness and sin and past experience and lived experience. And it was coming to the surface. And Peter had the opportunity to either back off and deny God again or just say, yep, it's in me, get it out. Yep, it's in me, what a fool I am. Yep, everywhere he went, he would tell that Gentile story. And you know he was trying to like publicly repent for being a weirdo. But I watch Christians claim they want God, start to press in. It gets real uncomfortable. They, they might get convicted. They might get rebuked. They might get thumped. And that's just too much. And they, they fall back for five or six years. Why didn't you just endure a little bit longer? So Moses is doing the same thing. He recognizes his calling and he says, I believe in his heart. I'll do that. And the Lord says, good. We got work to do. Because you're a problem. You got way too much Egypt in you. And we always know in the Bible, Egypt represents the world. You got way too much world in you to be used of me. But you got, I got I'm called. Yep, you're called, but you're not chosen yet. Many are called, few are chosen. In this instance, only one was called. So the slim pickings of him being chosen, I mean, the odds are stacked against him. Anytime we desire to answer the call of God, it will thrust us into a season of upheaval because God will change our flavor. And the older you get, the harder that will be. And that is why Jeremiah says it is good to bear the burden in your youth. It's not impossible, but old dogs get stuck in old ruts, and it's hard for them to learn new tricks. And this region is religious. It resists change. And that's why you have to be determined all the more to be different than who you were. The name of the game is change. If you don't want to change, you don't need to come to this church. You need to find a a good lukewarm seeker church that will give you the hottest thing in your life will be the cappuccino they sell you. That's the hottest thing in those churches anyways, their coffee bar, because it ain't the message or the congregation. Maybe that's why they have a coffee bar, because they need something hot for God in there. That's my opinion. feels pretty good, though. (laughs) I need to tell one of my friends that. Well, at least you got something hot in this church because it sure isn't sitting in your seats. (laughs) So we see, here's why we have to change. If we don't change, we'll try to serve God the old way of our life. Moses tried to fulfill this call the Egyptian way with the sword. I I mean, think about the lunacy of it. You recognize you're called to deliver the Hebrews out of your nation, that you're an, perhaps an heir, you're in line to be Pharaoh. And you think killing one, one Egyptian and burying him in the sand is going to start a revolution? You're crazy. But remember, according to uh, secular history, he was a military leader. So killing people is nothing to him. And he sees him fighting and mistreating one of his people. But you have to understand, the Hebrews don't look at Moses as one of them. They don't see him as a hometown boy. He looks like an Egyptian. He has that white thing that's kicked back, no facial hair. He dresses like an Egyptian. He is a prince. He is one of their political leaders. He's in the throne room. They don't see him as a Hebrew. And that's the problem. When the people don't see you, you're going to have to change. When they don't see you as what you claim to be, you're not what you claim to be. Well, I'm changing. If they can't see it, you're not. And it doesn't matter what you think you're called to do. If the people God has sent you to help don't see you or don't receive you, you've got a lot more changing to do. He tried to fulfill the call on his life the Egyptian way with the sword and with murder, and it failed. It failed. Just like many modern churches try to fulfill ministry the American way with entertainment and marketing or ministries try to fulfill ministry the cookful way. Laziness and cheap talk. Such a pretty calling. I just take it off my shelf every couple years, dust it off, polish it. Yep, there's my ministry calling. Put it back up there and go back to living like cookful. Yep, that's not how it's going to work. His failure caused him to flee in fear. Go back to Exodus now. We're going to spend the rest of our time, I think, in Exodus. Exodus chapter 2. That's where we were. So hopefully you can see now. He is 40 years an Egyptian, 40 years raised up in, we're going to say, sorcery and witchcraft, architecture, astronomy, astrology, uh, sciences, mathematics, polytheism, worshiping all their gods, Apis, Osiris, Anubis, all this pantheon of these half-animal gods. He's a military leader. Killing's no problem to him. He's married to a princess from the Ethiopian kingdom. He knows there's a hit out on his life, but he also knows he's got a calling. He tries to jumpstart it prematurely. He has no father in the faith. And so uh, he kills this Egyptian, buries him in the sand, but the Hebrews get word of it. And we know in uh, verse 15 here, Hebrews 2.15, Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Uh So Midian's quite a ways away, and we're talking a totally different kingdom altogether. The issue is that it's not really a kingdom. It's a nomadic people. So think about this. Egypt, when we talk about Egypt, we're talking pyramids, treasure cities, obelisks, sphinxes, We're talking the center of the world, the greatest might in existence up until that time. And you're dealing with Ethiopia, another kingdom, a civilization. And Midia, that's just a people. It's a nomadic people group. So we're not dealing with a cosmopolitan city. It's a long distance away. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. You're in verse 16. And they came and drew water. Now, priest, that also means prince or chieftain. And we know that that is uh, Jethro. He's also called Ruel. He's also called Rugal. He's also called Jether. He's got about six or seven different names throughout the Torah. But it's all, for the most part, the same man. There's a little bit to talk about. Maybe it's the grandfather. Maybe it's the son-in-law. But it's the same family. He had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. So we have bully shepherds. Think about this now. Jethro has seven daughters, and for whatever reason, he doesn't have any servants to care for his sheep, so he makes his daughters do it. That's not very traditional. One of the uh, Talmudic writings on the uh, commentary of the Jews of their history, they speculate, this is the Jews, this is not the Bible, but the Jews in their commentary, they say they think he's an outcast in his tribe because he has dropped polytheism, and he's now the high priest of Yahweh. That's one of the speculations which would explain why his daughters are being bullied, why he has no servants. He's an outcast because he serves one God and not the polytheistic gods of those regions. We know that after their deliverance, Jethro is the first to praise God. And he says, great is Yahweh. Moses doesn't start that worship service. The people don't. Jethro does. He says he's great among all gods. Anyway, the shepherds came and drove them away but this is where Moses is so Moses stood up and helped them now of course Moses is a military leader what are a bunch of shepherds to him this is sport so this one guy beats up a whole bunch of shepherds to defend these seven daughters and he helped them and watered their flock and when they came to Ruel their father but that's Jethro it's his other name he said how is it you are come so soon today and they said an Egyptian now notice that Moses fancies himself a Hebrew but how does everybody still see him how do people fancy you? How do, how do the people you claim to help, how do they see you? Do they see cookful all over you? Do they see your culture all over you? Your pride, your hurt, your offense? Are you a baller? they see baller all over you? Redneck? they see redneck all over you? I mean, what is it? What is it you self-identify with? What is it you fancy yourself? Because he thinks he's a Hebrew. That's why he killed an Egyptian. But everywhere he goes, they see him for who he is still. He's an Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and also drew water for us, and he watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, and where is he? And why is it you've left the man? Come, call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses a Zippor his daughter, and she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. So obviously we have a massive jump in time because you don't come home and have a kid tomorrow. All right, we got a couple years of time that just passed, so hopefully you can see that. Exodus 2.19, I have in my notes, even in his flight, though in his heart he now aligns with the Hebrews and their cause, no one can see it yet. Because his lived experience is tried and true Egyptian. He squeaks and it sounds like pyramids. (laughs) That's just it. He still looks, acts, speaks like an Egyptian, and yet he was content to be a Midianite and yet not fully midianite not fully egyptian not fully hebrew a man without a people and so let me ask you who, who do you claim to be your people because there's only one right answer and everything else will fail and mock your god who do you claim as your people is it potheads is it your mama dim yes. <laughs> Who rings the bell and makes you come running? Is it Mom and Dem? That is to say, your mother and those folks? Because we got both Mom and Dem, Mom and Dem. Yeah. <laughs> Who are your people? Because if you're born again, your people are the body of Christ. Nobody else. And if you align more strongly with the culture than you do the body of Christ, you're in sin. I understand we have different accents. We have different ways of eating. We're a pretty international church now, and I'm very proud of that. But if we're born again, we ought to be able to go anywhere in the world and feel comfortable, even if we have to have a translator. Because there's the joy of the Lord. There's the the inward witness that this is my brother in Christ. This is my sister in Christ. This is a woman of God. I wish she was my great-grandma, but that you can tell that woman knows God. She doesn't have a tooth in her head. She's blind in one eye, and she's crippled. But she, through the translator, tells you your life and your history. And she says, and I will pray for you, young man. And you're like, I know you will. (laughs) People, the world is not worthy of it. If that's your people, you please God. If you're still hung up on mom and dem and that hood you come from, you mock your God. That's blasphemous. It's idolatry. Shame on you for listening to that sin and letting that steal your heart and your faith. Because Moses is realizing, I cannot be Egyptian, and I have no idea how to get it out of me. Basically, when you kill one of your fellow Egyptians, you're kind of like drawing a line in the sand like, that ain't my folks. But that doesn't mean you have fully converted yet. Huh. <laughs> He marries into ministry. We know this because dad in law, Jethro, he's a priest of Midiah. He's a priest of the Most High God. He marries into a, he's a shepherding priest. This is a major 180 degrees in his life. Our problem is we are still way too much in control. We control everything. We'll tell the Lord, I'll serve you, but only if you make it comfortable. We were in an elder meeting last night and we were talking about a church that I saw an article about. And uh, the the pastor is divorcing his wife. Unfortunately, they've done it real private. Even the website won't address it. I'm just kicking the wife to the curb. It's a massive church. The guy's a little bit younger than me and divorcing his pretty wife for who knows why. And uh, so I was on their website just trying to figure out where you're coming from. And they're part of an association of churches that is uh, notorious for adultery and divorces. And on one of their websites, they had a video that had a carnival, and the headline of the video was, we make it hard to go to hell because we make church so much fun. And I thought, well, just because church is fun doesn't mean you're getting saved. Because if you don't know the horrible news, you won't appreciate the good news. And if you don't know you're cursed and damned, you won't be thankful to be born again. So I'm not really sure you're going to get saved at Carnival Church. But I saw the Ferris wheel, and I was reminded the Lord had told me a couple years ago in prayer. He said, the church will become an even greater carnival than you've yet seen. And here's a video with a carousel on it. And I thought, huh, look at that. So I was sharing that with my wife, and she said, yeah, because take up your cross is spelled F-U-N. And we try to serve Jesus as long as it's F-U-N. And that's not our kingdom. You can't claim you want God and serve Him at your pace because you won't ever even hit the finish line. You won't even find the start line. This is a major 180 degree in life. And you know, when Jesus Christ gets a hold of you, there ought to be a major adjustment in your course. Because if God Almighty gets in your cockpit of your jet and you're off course, you know it's going to instantly be realigned. You may not be where you need to be yet, but at least you're not over Alaska anymore. You're kind of over the South Pacific heading where you need to go. But you can tell if your life is still off course, God's not in charge. Shame on you. Shame on you. Like Paul said, I speak this to your shame. You've been in this church that long and you're still sailing the wrong direction. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Don't tell me you serve Jesus. Don't tell me he's in charge because he makes course correction. He'll come in there and rudely say, get out of that seat. You don't know what you're doing. And it won't be comfortable, but it will change your life, which is what your confession says you want. Amen. This is a major 180-degree turn in his life. So think about this. I made this chart in my notes. In Egypt, Egypt was a cosmopolitan empire. Now he's with country folk in the desert. He grew up in temples and palaces of stone, and now he's living in tents. He was a prince, now he's a shepherd. He was part of a civilization, now he's part of a nomadic tribe. He was a general, now he's a shepherd. He was a murderer and a killer, and now he has to become a caregiver for the stupidest animal on the planet. Good preparation for ministry. He comes from a polytheistic society, and now he's in the household of a monotheistic priest. Everything's changing, and he's being, it's a deep dive, a deep, a deep marination. This isn't correspondence class. This isn't learning Spanish three hours a week. This is, you're, jumped off, you're dumped off in Guatemala, and nobody speaks English. In fact, one of the things I note in my, some of my old studies, when he approaches Midia, He has no discourse with anybody, and I believe it's because they don't speak the same language. They don't speak Hebrew. They don't speak Egyptian. He doesn't speak Midian. There's tribal language differences there. There's no conversation going on. He is a a fish out of water, a man without a country, trying to find God. But he's content to dwell in a place that will break him off from where he was raised. And my God, if we don't all need that, even those of us that were blessed to be raised in a church home with a mom and dad that love us, who took us to church and taught us everything they knew, we still need junk severely broken off of our life. No matter where we grew up, there was weird there because there were people there. <laughs> Amen. He was the heir apparent in Egypt, and in Midia, he's in son-in-law to a shepherd priest. <laughs> That's all he's got. Uh, when he dies, what do you get? bunch of sheep. What do you got right now? A bunch of sheep. So is there increase? No. There's nothing, no difference still. Just got to bury somebody and the beat goes on. Not much of a promise of anything. <laughs> in Egypt, he had temples. In Midia, he had tents. In Egypt, he had treasure cities. And in Midia, there was nothing but desert and scrub brush. In Egypt, there were slaves. And in Midia, he is the slave. And the thing I keep seeing over and over again, turn to Genesis 46 real quick. The thing I keep seeing over and over and over again as I look at what he became in Midian was shepherd and sheep. And we know the Egyptians, uh, excuse me, the Israelites were shepherds. That's what the ancient Egyptian word that that historian Methenos says, Menethos says is that the hiskos, the captive shepherds. That's what they called the Hebrews, the captive shepherds. Genesis 46 Joseph, Verse 34, Joseph tells his brethren, and when Joseph is the prime minister, You shall say, Your servant's trade has been about cattle from our youth even unto now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Of course, they dwell in Goshen for 430 years. For every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. So what has Moses become? The very thing his culture taught him to hate for 40 years. Because God doesn't care about your lived experience. He doesn't care about your value system or your culture. Pastor Akwokwo taught me, God is not impressed with my culture. He said, God is not impressed with your culture, brother. I wish he would have called me son, but he called me brother. He said, God doesn't care about your American culture, and God does not care about my Nigerian culture. God has given us the kingdom culture. Culture has become a wicked idol to man today. And It's disgusting and you use it as an excuse to not obey God. And I love it that for 430 years, the culture of Egypt hasn't changed. They're still calling these people the captive shepherds, and they still hate shepherds, and they still hate sheep. And when Moses says, I want to be what you called me to be, God, God said, well, part of it's go be what you hate. And he was content. So this comes back to Peter. It's just like Peter. That very thing you say you won't do, it's the very thing he's probably going to make you do. To break you of you. The biggest hindrance to you is not the devil. It's not your spouse, and it isn't me. It's you. You're the worst problem you have. You are your worst problem because the devil isn't even with you all the time, but you are. The only spiritual warfare you need to master is that six inches of gray matter between your ears. Some of you, that might be being generous. (laughs) Yeah. Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So here's the prince of Egypt walking in, and he's having to smell like the thing his culture for 40 years taught him to despise. Except he was content. If this is what it takes to finish my race, I'll do it. To fulfill the genuine calling of God that even according to Josephus, the Egyptian soothsayers could see, Moses had to be changed into another man. This is why I teach this stuff a lot. Have you changed lately? Do you still smell the same? Even the Egyptians could see the call of God according to Josephus. Not according to the Bible, but Josephus. The Egyptian soothsayers could see the call of God on Moses, but he still had to be changed into a different man to fulfill it. So I made this observation, callings, because Moses was called, and prophecies don't qualify you for your race. And haven't we in our circles made idols and gilded words out of prophecies and dreams? But a calling and a prophecy, even by a soothsayer, is not enough to get you to finish your race. Callings and prophecies don't qualify you for your race. They barely point you to the starting line. Moses had to learn to lead people, not use them as a politician would. Moses had to learn to be tender, not ruthless like kings and politicians are. Moses had to learn to be an interceder, an intercessor and not a destroyer. These were 180-degree personality changes and character changes and culture changes. Moses had to learn to, first, to lead first and not dictate from a throne. Moses had to learn to know the God of the Hebrews in order to be able to lead the Hebrews. Moses had to learn to not lean on his education and his upbringing. Much learning will make you mad And not many's wives are called. What good was all those sciences of the Assyrians and the Chaldeans when you're out there in the wilderness just walking in circles with sheep? What good is architecture out there? What good is astrology out there? What good is witchcraft out there? Just you and some sheep making the rounds. What are you doing tomorrow? Making the rounds. What are you doing next week? Making the rounds. Hopefully I can be home in a couple days once we make this big circuit. (laughs) Moses had to be humbled from his arrogance of opulence. Not many rich are called. You don't see many rich people going to the ministry. Now, when you read about Pentecostal pioneers from 100 years ago, if you can get a hold of Dr. Sumrall's book, Pioneers of Faith, you'll read the stories of several of those men who were very wealthy in Europe when they were called and in order to fulfill the call of God, they walked away from their inheritance, their family's lordship. And by lordship, I mean they like lords in Europe. Rich educations, rich inheritance. They walked away from all of it to walk with God from scratch. Have mercy on anybody that starts ministry with a million bucks in their pocket. That'll destroy you. What happened to the days of faith? What happened to the prophecy of Zechariah that says, despise not the day of small beginnings? He had to be humbled from his arrogance of opulence. There's a big change from living in marble palaces to stepping in sheep dung every day of your life. (laughs) And go from wearing linen to wearing wool. Moses had to learn shepherding to relate to a shepherding people. Everything Egypt gave him had to be amended, tweaked, adjusted, omitted, or downright burned to the ground. He lost his entire identity. And the wonderful thing is it took 40 years. Just as much time as he spent in Egypt, the Lord let him spend that much time going in circles, tending the very thing his culture hates because he doesn't care about your lived experience. He wants to deliver you from it. You ought to be excited to be delivered from it. And then you ought to figure out what's the most uncomfortable thing you can do for God and stick with it. And realizing that our, our opulence here in America, our prosperity, ruins us as human beings. It ruins us as Christians. Makes us lazy. Makes us insecure. Makes us overweight. Makes us sissified. We can't stand to have a cross. We want fun. Sunday fun day. Like I said, in most of these churches, the only thing hot is their coffee. That's why they serve it. <laughs> Four services on Sunday morning. Nothing throughout the rest of the week. It took Moses 40 years. He, and when he was done, he looked nothing like he did when he first wandered into Midia. At the age of 80, nobody would have ever mistaken him for an Egyptian. Here's our problem. We ain't got 40 years. Here's our blessing. We have the Holy Ghost. There was no Bible written here. Moses wrote the first five books. He's living what he's going to write later. So we're without exception. We're without excuse. We have the Holy Ghost. We have the new birth. We have the, 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 the benefit of 2,000 years of doctrine given to us. We have a Bible in our lap. It doesn't to take us 40 years to change who we are. It's just going to take that other cuss word. Work. Work. Yeah, you know the cuss word, don't you? You just cussed in church. <laughs> 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 he was willing to do all this in order to please God. Come back to Hebrews 11 real quick. Why did he choose to do this? Hebrews tells us why he made such a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 11. Let me encourage you, uh, unless you're just really grossly backslidden and, and you don't even know where God is, you're probably right where God wants you to be, so don't quit it. Amen. Unless it's sin and you know, you got folks helping you to quit something. But enjoy the horrible boss. He's putting something in you and taking something out of you. Enjoy uh, uncomfortable workouts and enjoy uncomfortable budget times because it's putting something in you called character. It's one thing this nation lacks is character. It's one of our great cultural deficits. We don't have character. We don't know how to suffer. We don't know how to endure anything. This culture lives for the next easiest option. And you and I both know on our phone, if the website doesn't come up, we're backing out going to the next website. And we're talking, if it doesn't come up in a sixteenth of a second, I'm out of here. Because that's inconvenient. And if two-day Air Prime doesn't come to your house, you're like canceling the order, getting it shipped again. That's lame. You're like, if I can't order the stoplight, I don't need it. (laughs) And it should be at my home before I get there. Via drone. Yeah. And so should DoorDash, you know, because I'm so lazy, I can't go get the food myself. I'd rather pay three times as much in tips and fees than actually, like, get my lazy bum in my car and drive to the restaurant, paying 40 bucks for Wendy's because you're too lazy to drive across. What is wrong with you people? That's why you're broke. You know why you're broke? It's not because God doesn't prosper. It's because you're stupid. Good Lord, we are a retarded culture. And somebody's making billions of dollars off of your stupidity. And then you want me to pay your light bill. I ain't doing it. Phew, Lord of mercy. DoorDash. Yeah, and you know why they call it DoorDash? Because you're the ding dong. That'll be seventy-two dollars for four tacos? Bide inflation, baby. Huh. <laughs> Take the hard professor, not the easy one. Take the hard assignment, not the easy one. Sign up for the hard manager, not the easy one. Be hard on your employees. Don't be soft on them. Let's try to save this nation. We've become so soft, we just, we just roll everywhere like a bunch of slugs. Hebrews 11, why was Moses willing to sacrifice everything that had been given to him? Verse 25, choosing rather than to suffer affliction. Remember, take up your cross is spelled F-U-N. Do you know why you'll gravitate towards people just like you in the natural realm? Because it's easy. you know why cliques abound? Because it's easy and petty and carnal. You know it's hard to go talk to somebody totally different from you. Different color, different look different accent. But once you get good at it, you prefer those people. I had enough middle-aged white me- men for myself. I'd like, I want to meet some other people. Give me some Asians. Give me some Hispanics. Give me some big people, short people. Give me some wide people. Give me some people in wheelchairs. Give me something different. Aren't you, aren't you tired of you? The world's a lot more creative than just little old lily white you. <laughs> he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God that's who his people are. By faith, he said, those are God's people. They will be my people. He could have died of an Egyptian and gone to hell with Hebrew blood. Blood does nothing for you. Your DNA does nothing for you. Your color does nothing for you. Who you associate with, who you align with, who you claim is your destiny. You claim the wrong thing, your destiny is shot. He said, Those are my people, and I choose by faith to reject Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's inheritance and Pharaoh's destiny, that I might suffer with the people of God. I don't want to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I esteem the approach of Christ greater than the riches and the uh, the great riches of the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of reward. Verse 27 By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, Moses forsook where he came from, especially since it wasn't kingdom-based. How about you? What are you unwilling to forsake? We, we're commanded to forsake anything that's not established in the kingdom. Any habit. Any, I should say anything that's unbiblical. There's some things that are just neutral. God doesn't care about. Enjoy it. But do you have the faith to forsake things that hinder the gospel in your life? Or are we still saying, well, you don't know where I come from. I don't care. You don't know what happened to me. Don't care. Well, you, you don't. It, it, I was raised rough, and I wasn't. Do you know how I was raised? Did you ever ask? Or is this always just about you? Does it always have to be about you and you and you and you and your past and you? So it really got to be that way? That's selfish. It's arrogant. It's narrow-minded. Sensual. It's idolatry. It doesn't please God. I don't think how. I just wonder, how do you think you're pleasing God? I mean, you just think. He's happy because you showed up tonight. Yeah, you. That's a start. You went and bought your running shoes. <laughs> Still have a race to run, princess. You haven't even started yet. Time is running. By faith, he chose God's people. By faith, he rejected sin. By faith, he forsook where he came from. By faith, he wanted God. And it changed him. It took 40 years. Now, what's interesting... When you follow the life of Moses after that, he spends the last 40 years doing what he spent 40 years in preparation for. And you don't see an ounce of Egypt come out of him. He doesn't get to be a military leader ever again. Joshua becomes a military leader. Remember when they're fighting the Amalekites, he has to stand on the hill. All he gets to do is this. And you know he's going, man, but I'm good. No, 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 no. It's mm. not how I would have done it. I killed Ethiopians better than this. All he gets to do up there is hold his hands up and shut up. Because God doesn't care where he came from. God doesn't care about the skill set he brings to the table. You know what? He never gets to build any more treasure cities. He gets to live in tents the rest of his life. And then he says, hey, if we're going to build altars, we don't get to use the tools of Egypt. God doesn't want it. We're stacking stone because that will help strip Egypt out of us. Nothing he learned in Egypt was of any benefit to God in the desert. And don't you know that was hard on him? The one time he manifests Egypt, that rage of a tyrant, he strikes the rock a second time. He could have gotten away with it as a pharaoh or a politician, a little temper tantrum, struck somebody, but you don't get away with that junk with God. One time he manifested just a little bit of worldliness, cost him his destiny. So my question is, where are we pursuing God still reeking like an Egyptian, thinking like one? calling them our people. Shame on you. Your people is the body of Christ. Your people is the body of Christ wherever you find them. In an airport lobby, in the bush of Mexico, in an inner city church, in a high-rise church. That's the people of God. That's your people. Shame on you when you think your people is where you come from. That's not your people. That's idolatry. And They'll hold you back. Have you noticed they haven't gone any further themselves? Why would you run with people that haven't changed? The name of the game is let's be who God's called us to be. Let's get as much of Egypt out of us as we possibly can so we can run this race. Hebrews summarizes it this way. Let us lay aside the weights and the sins. Everything that we might run with patience the race set before us. It's what we're called to do. You can do it. Some of you are like, thank God. I mean, I don't have to drag around this last name. No, man, change your last name if you want to. But just make sure you change in your heart first. You don't have to be like mama. You don't have to be like daddy. You don't have to be like Jackson County or White County or Sparta or Cookville or wherever you hail from. You don't have to be that way. You can be bigger and you can be better. But your heart has to say, in Christ, I'm bigger than this. Smith Wigglesworth said, On the inside, I'm 10,000 times bigger than I am on the outside. you got to know that and believe it. You don't have to be a product of your upbringing. And you certainly don't have permission to rest on your upbringing. Because the name of the game is change. It's up to you if you want to do it, though. All right? That feel good? All right, you learn anything? I'm going to try to pull a character like this every Wednesday for a while and show you how God doesn't care about your past. You get to overcome it.